In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum So this is going to be the second lesson in the series that had to do with the general prophethood. Um, in the previous session, we gave a brief introductory overview of the topics that we're going to be covering. Uh, so in this session, we're going to actually get into the topic and start with the main question uh, in this entire theme of general prophethood, which is, what is the necessity for prophethood? Or what is the necessity for revelation? So the outline of the lesson uh, is, first of all, to make an argument for the necessity of prophethood. The argument is going to be made up of three premises. And then uh, the last of the three premises is going to be directly linked to the limits of human reason and human knowledge in general. So the author is going to spend a lot more time on that third premise. Uh, and he will conclude the lesson with the general benefits of prophethood. The lesson and the manner in which it is structured, uh, while it is lengthier, it is longer than the, the majority of the lessons of the book, um, it's actually quite a simple lesson in the manner in which it's presented. The argument is simple and uh, it's not very convoluted, it's very linear. And in fact, the two first premises, as we're going to see, are generally speaking a repetition of what we have already seen in part one. So we're restating and using what we've already, building on what we've already established in part one. Um, so that said, I thought it was a good opportunity to add a little bit more to what we find in, in the book in this case, in this session, because the topic is an, actually a very important one. Uh, and it's not that the lesson is lacking. The, the argument that he makes is a very interesting argument in that it implies a lot of stuff. It includes a lot of stuff without having to say it. Uh, that said, there are many other arguments that can be made for establishing the necessity of revelation and prophethood. And we're going to mention a few of them at the end. Uh, and so it depends on the level of you know, complexity and sophistication that you're looking for in the argument. Generally speaking, this is a very valid argument, and if you know how to go in-depth in it, you can get the majority of what you need from the points that could be made in other arguments from it as well. Um, so the first point, the necessity for prophethood. So the argument that the author is going to be presenting to establish that it is necessary for human beings to have this source of knowledge called revelation or prophethood based on these three premises, three points. And as we said, you, the two first points we're going to make should be very familiar to you as we've already established that in the first part of the book. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on the third premise. Premise number one, we've already established that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists and that he has created human beings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given his attributes one of them being wisdom he is not going to 
act in any way without purpose. So there has to be purpose from the creation of human beings. So what is the purpose? In the philosophical language we said, it is so that every creature, in this case human beings, reach their perfection or the end for which they were created. In the case of human beings, the end for which they were created is to go towards God, to go back towards God, to return to God based on voluntary action. Okay, so this is going to be the key, the voluntary action piece. So the creation is not an issue. We know that we exist. We know that there is a God that created us. So now it's a matter of this voluntary action implies things. Implies that, and we're going to explain that more in premise 2 and then 3, implies that you are going to act based on whatever you know and whatever you can. But that action is going to result in one path or another, in one outcome or another. There is a result to your action. The end result could end up in path A or path B, outcome A or outcome B. And there are no different, it's contradictory, ex mutually exclusive outcomes. So you either end up in one or the not one, which is the other one, the two. Yeah. Yeah. So premise, the first premise of the argument is that we have been created and there is a purpose to our creation. And the purpose is that we go towards, we reach the end for which we were created, which is going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through acts that are voluntary, based on free will. So free will is going to be the main ingredient this is, you know, between two brackets, this voluntary action going back towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, going back to the origin, in a religious language, we would call that worship. Okay, so any action, if it's leaning, if it's in line with, aligned with that general purpose, is going to be viewed as an act of worship. Okay, so this is a side note. The second note here that we should mention very quickly is that of course, we're linking back to, we're not going to repeat this for every part of the lesson, but this is all based on the fact that we've established the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we've established that He's a personal God, we've established that He has will, that He has lordship, so He takes care, He guides, He nurtures, He manages the affairs of the world, and that He acts with purpose and with wisdom. Okay, so all of that is going to be implied, included in everything we're saying. So that's premise one. Premise two. For me to be able to act based on free will, I need some ingredients. One of them is actually having the power slash will to act. That's one. We don't spend any more time on that. We spent enough time on that. I have to be in, a, in an environment, in a context, in circumstances that actually allow me to act. So that should also go without saying. So we don't spend a lot more time on that. The third ingredient that I really need, and there might be others, but we're going to the, the core. The other ingredient that I need is knowledge. If the purpose of my action is that while it's based on freedom of choice, it's to go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to act in a way that is aligned with that purpose, I need to have knowledge about that purpose. I need to have knowledge about what is that action that is required of me. And what's the action that is not required. 
and what action is prohibited, and what are the ramifications of each, and so on and so forth. So I need knowledge. So this is the main ingredient. Premise three. Human beings do have a source of knowledge. Let's just call it human knowledge. The two main ingredients, and there can be others depending on how you split it, the two main ingredients of human knowledge are sense perception and reason. So that part should go without saying. Sense perception? Perception, as in the input of data that is perceived <coughs> in the world through your five senses. Okay? So that's one way to know things, and the other one is to do something with that knowledge through your reason. Okay? So together, let's put that together under the general heading of human knowledge. This is human knowledge. So premise one, we're created with a purpose, and the purpose is to go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through voluntary action. Premise two, in order to act based on freedom of choice, based on free will, I need to know. I need to have knowledge. Premise three, human knowledge is limited. Human knowledge has limitations. There is something called human knowledge, but it has limitations. Are we saying that we now put aside sense perception and human reason? Not at all. So this could be a, you know, a, a fallacy here or a mistake that someone may make. We're not going to jump from here to say, therefore, human reason is to be put aside. We rely entirely on revelation. We can't. Even while looking into revelation, in parallel to that, we have to rely on reason. So reason is always going to be a constant. The question is, is it a necessary and sufficient condition? Is it both? It's necessary for sure. In any case, there's a necessity to rely on human reason. But is it sufficient? Can we only rely on it or do we need to rely on something else? And the claim, our claim is, we absolutely have to rely on something else. So here the author says, so a, little, a couple of remarks we'll make, but here the author says, I'm not going to spend too much time on premise one, because it should be clear, and I'm not going to spend too much time on premise two, it should be clear. We're going to spend our energy on premise three, which is about this idea of the limitation of human reason. And what do we mean by it? And then where does revelation play a role if we agree that there is human reason and that it is valid and that it is necessary. So here I, I wrote two things. The first point is we don't have time and this is not the place for this, but this is what opens the door to that entire debate that we find in multiple fields and it is a very popular and very important one today, which is what are the limits of human reason? What are the limits of science? What are the limits of religious discourse? And so you find some aspects of this in the philosophy of science. You find some aspects of this in the philosophy of religion. This is in general. You find some aspects of this in the place of science and what are we supposed to do with the advancement of technology and all of that, let's say in bioethics. So one field is allowing you, is giving you the tools to explore the world, is describing the world to you, it's describing how it functions, but it's not really telling you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. 
And this is where morality has to play a role. And so this brings it back to that entire field, which we're not going into right now, but this is where the door opens. So once we've established that there is a God and that these are his attributes and that there is human beings created with a purpose, now we have to see, is there a need for something beyond what the humans have already been given or not? Given internally, so we mean reason or not. And if so, then what are the limitations? So a lot of this needs to be explored in those other fields. And we're not going to touch on that, but I think it's an interesting point to make. The bridge is, opens up here. That's one point. And the second one, I think, is very important to make too, but I'm not going to spend more time on it. I think all of you are very well aware of this, but it's a good place to mention it. I don't think there's a need in our religion to emphasize the role of reason. Our religion is not only about making sure that revelation and religion are aligned with. We do, our claim is not only that our religion claims that they're compatible. That's one lever, one level. So compatibility of human reason with revelation or with religion, that's one level. level. But the second level is to take it one step beyond, which is what we claim as Muslims and as Shia. We say it's not only compatible, they're not only compatible, it's actually a necessity. There's an obligation upon us as believers to rely on reason. So it's never a question of revelation <coughs> or reason. Science or revelation, science or religion. That's never the, the question. In our case, what our claim is, is that it's always and. We look at both. And if there's a contradiction, it means there's a mistake somewhere. That's our claim. So we have to go back and find where the mistake was, because we believe that they're fully aligned, and they go together, and each has their field, and he, each has their sphere of activity and sphere of exploration and investigation and research. Okay, so these were the two main points. So now we concentrate on the third premise. The limits of human reason. If we go back to what we said in the previous session, we said the point of general prophethood is to take us from the origin to the destination. In other words, we come from somewhere and we're going somewhere. So the question is, based on those two, what am I supposed to be doing? What's the path? What's the way? So it's very practical. So if you go back to the works of the theology, kalam, beliefs, you see that they concentrate here a lot on this notion of law. So this is the law with a big L, generally. We're talking about law as in a system of conduct, a system to live your life, a lifestyle, a worldview. This is not necessarily only the, 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 the issues or the questions or the items that you would find, let's say, in Islamic law, in Sharia law. Okay, it's a lot broader than that. But what we're talking about, what they're trying to establish is what's the proper way to live your life? Given the origin and given the destination. And that's why we said we could have explored the matters related to the afterlife, death and the afterlife before. Because if you establish both, then that forces you in a certain path too. Okay, but let's put that aside. So if the question now is how am I supposed to live between that origin and that destination, that afterlife. How am I supposed to live? What's the path that I'm supposed to follow? 
The how means I have to have knowledge. We said I have to act based on freedom of will. I need to have knowledge. My human knowledge, my human reason, based on my sense perception, is limited. It does not give me the how. It does not tell me this is how you're, how you're supposed to live. And we're going to come back to kind of a half objection to that in a, in a moment. So here's where we say, where does that information come from? What is the source of that knowledge? So before we say what it is, I have to look at what are the conditions, what are the characteristics of that source of knowledge that would allow me to feel like this is a reliable source of knowledge. I have to put some standards, some conditions for that source of knowledge that I'm going to rely on to tell me how I'm going to live my life. That path that I'm going to follow between the origin and the destination. A first criteria. I would expect, if I'm going to follow that source of knowledge, I would expect that that source of knowledge has a complete knowledge, a complete understanding of human nature from all of its angles. The physical, with everything that that means, the psychological, and the spiritual, if we want to lump them under three big heads. So that's already a really big claim. Before I can completely rely on a source of knowledge to tell me how I'm going to live my life, I want to make sure that that source of knowledge has a complete understanding of who I am as a human being. How do I function? What makes me tick from every angle? What's good for me and what's bad for me? One. More than that. That source of knowledge needs to be fully, absolutely knowledgeable of where I came from and where I'm going. If either or is missing, that path is not clear. Muhammad Salam has a, has a saying he says if someone is lacking the direction, lacking the aim to where they're going, going faster will only make them further away from their target. Here I need to know where did I come from, what's my origin, what's my source, and where am I headed? If I don't know where I'm headed, given where I came from, it's not easy for me to be able to just come up with, and this is how I'm supposed to be now. This is how I'm supposed to carry myself and conduct myself in behavior and belief and action and so on and so forth. More than that. As a human being, I have relationships with other human beings and with other creatures, with the rest of the world. So I would also expect that source of knowledge to be completely aware, knowledgeable, understanding, of the nature of those relationships and how they're supposed to be. How am I supposed to conduct myself with people like me, people in my family, people in my community, people in society, people who came before me in humanity, people who will come after me decades or centuries or millennia after me. How am I supposed to conduct myself with other living entities? How am I supposed to conduct myself with earth and nature in general? Where does that come from? All of these are relationships. I have to know what they mean and how they're supposed to be. And then depending on those relationships, there's going to be effects that come out of them. 
Each one of these relationships, depending on how I choose to behave and what I do with it, there's going to be an effect. So that source of knowledge also needs to know all the repercussions, all the consequences of those relationships. That's a lot of knowledge. That is a lot of expectation being asked from this source of knowledge. And finally, and so this is supposed to kind of englobe all of this, complete knowledge of where lies benefit and harm, happiness and unhappiness, and to what degree, and then the, for us, very important question, and how to balance all of this. We have conflicting desires and conflicting whims and, and uh, drives internally within us, that's on one side, and we'll talk about it in a second. And on the other, we have conflicts in society and when we deal with the rest of the world. How to strike that balance? Where does my right start and stop? Where does my privilege start and stop? How do I balance it? What do I prioritize when there is a conflict? So all of this, while we keep in mind that we all know now the uniqueness of every human being. So what is supposed to be common and what's supposed to be the standard for human beings and what's the exception? What's supposed to be common to a collectivity of human beings, so a society or a community? And then they change, so there's culture and there's societal trends and they change from time to time. So the reason <coughs> we say this is if we want to come up with a weight that you're supposed to live, so is this a claim that this is universal? So if it's universal, then you have to keep that in mind too. Human beings are very different. So you have to come up with a way that matches, meets all of those requirements, all of those standards, while keeping in mind that human beings are unique and different, but there's a common core. And the same thing applies, this is at the level of an individual human being, and the same thing can be said about societies or communities. So they change. If you look at a community that lived a thousand years ago or that will live 5,000 years from now, can I come up with something that is supposed to apply to both? Can I actually put, in, put a system, establish a system that is universal, that will apply to both? Does that make sense? Is that possible? Yeah, so the last point here is we're not only looking for a very high-level overview. We're talking about a way that you're supposed to live your life. So that system needs to go into the details. So this is a detailed system that goes into your lifestyle, the way you think, the way you carry yourself. There is a practical component. There is a theoretical component. There is a psychological, spiritual component. All of this needs to be taken into consideration. And then you put that in the complexity of a society and in the complexity of temporal or historicity, okay? things that change over time and they're interpreted over time in a very different way. And that system is still supposed to be applicable. And the last point that we haven't emphasized a lot and we're going to talk about it a little bit more is going to be all of this is not only for this life. All of this is supposed to work for the greater benefit and the greater good of human beings living in this world, but keeping in mind that they're going to another world. There's an afterlife. 
So we don't want a system that is only one-sided. A system that is only beneficial for the afterlife but does nothing for the present life. Or a system that only works for this world but that does nothing for the afterlife. So now we have kind of put in place our requirements. If I want to blindly follow a system and say I adhere to this kind of law, path, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, worldview, ideology, these are my requirements. That we know of, no such laws exist. And no one has ever claimed to have created such laws. No one in the right mind is going to say, and I have absolute knowledge of a human being from every aspect, or human societies, or put in something that will never be altered before or after what I'm putting right now, that is universally applicable, that applies to this world and the next. That's one. So human beings already admit and confess to their own limits. One. Two. If we look at the <coughs> world today and throughout history, especially today where we think we're a lot more sophisticated, a lot more complex, a lot more mature, we've learned a lot from history, we see the constant need for revision, the constant need for improvement. Today, in any parliament, in any society, you see, they always go back to the laws, the constitutions that they put in place, and they review them. They have mechanisms built in to make sure that there is a feedback constantly taking place so that the improvement is always taking place, which is openly admitting that it's always limited and it always needs to be improved. Furthermore, so the author here goes on a little bit of a tangent talking about the current systems that exist in the world, and then he makes a little point, and he says even if we look at the constitutions and the legal systems of the world today, on one side we have to recognize that a lot of what is considered good about them actually came from revelation actually came from religious background and religious basis or bases or a, a religious foundation and so he makes that point so I thought I'd uh, this is a, a book that I had read a while back it's religious foundations of Western civilization there's a lot of these it's just the one I, I was able to get my hands on the past couple of days okay it's a very big book but and it's just one little passage that I'm reading here but it gives an idea that this, we're not the only ones who think this or say this. Okay, so this is uh, Professor Daniel Elazar, and he is being quoted from a book called Covenant and Policy in Biblical Israel. Okay, it's a 1995 uh, publication. So he says, The covenants of the Bible and the founding covenants of Western civilization are the founding covenants, sorry, of Western civilization. So he's working with the idea of the covenants between the prophets, specifically Abraham, and God. Perforce, they have to do with God. They have their beginnings in the need to establish clear and binding relationships between God and humans, and among humans, relationships that must be understood to be political, far more than theological in character, designed to establish lines of authority, distributions of power, bodies politic, and systems of law. It is indeed the genius of the idea and its biblical source that it seeks both to legitimize political life and to direct it into the right paths. 
to use theopolitical relationships to build a bridge between heaven and earth without letting either swallow up the other. And then he continues, the covenant idea has within it the seeds of modern constitutionalism. So this is all, like he's basically summarizing all of current day political theory and political philosophies being summarized here. The covenant idea has within it the seeds of modern constitutionalism and that it emphasizes the mutually accepted limitations and the power of all parties to it. So today, if you study political theory, what do they tell you? You live in a society that in which you are openly agreeing to let go of some of your rights as an individual so that you can live in a society with other individuals. Otherwise, if everybody wants their full rights, then there's going to be an overlap and there's going to be conflict. Right? So the, the only way to make all of this work is that there's an implicit recognition that by living in a society, by living in a group of other people, he says all of this, the foundations of this, and now people grow up in it, so it's subconsciously part of your culture and your thinking and your wiring when you're growing up, so you don't even think about it. So this is the idea. I'm not going to keep going, but that's generally what he's talking about. So the idea of how powers are balanced and, 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 and. So he's looking at systems of rights and political theory, constitutions, governments, democracy, and so on and so forth. This is just one example of many, many others. So the author does make this, uh, he alludes to the idea that even when we look at the sophisticated, complex, legal, political systems of the world today, we can trace back a lot of what we consider to be very good and valuable in them from revelation, from a system of revelation, from prophethood. And the other point is that even in the best of these systems, none of them is really looking at the afterlife. They're always concentrating all of their efforts on making, <coughs> managing the affairs of this world and making this society work. That's, if we assume that these is, this is all done with the best of intentions to really create very just, equitable societies for everybody, every citizen living in them, and so on and so forth. And here's the other important point is that even if we had a group of people who wanted to build a system that they claim to be good for all of the dimensions of the human being and for after life, after this life, so after death, then there's simply no access to it. This is not an area where human beings can come up with their own theories and mind about what awaits us after death. There's absolutely no access to it. Right? There's nothing that you can rely on. So this is the impossible to access even of desire. And then, and he doesn't solve it, he just says, and then what do we do about conflict? So what is going to be our main criteria for solving conflicts in these societies? So as you can see, there's a lot of emphasis on the social dimension. And this is something you're going to see in a lot of the more recent theological works. This is a very important dimension to the argument. I would tell you when you read this, you can flip it and use a lot of the same thinking, a lot of the same argumentation, use it for inside the human being. Okay? So, and you know, Plato and others have done this a lot in their works. So they look at the human being and the different faculties they have, and then they look at a society and the different entities that form a society, and they say you can make parallels. Well, so here we can do the same thing. If you look at this society and you say there are parts of it, entities within a society that are going to be in conflict, so how are you going to resolve that conflict? Okay, well, if you look at your own kingdom inside your own self, you're going to see that there's going to be conflict. 
So how are you going to resolve that conflict? What are you going to rely on? What are you going to give priority to internally? If you have one faculty pushing you in one direction, your mind telling you you have to study, you have an exam tomorrow, and the rest of your body saying go to sleep, you're tired, which one do you give priority to? Which one ought you to do? Which is the right one to do? Or is there a right one to do? Okay, so studying history. So here he, he makes, you know, for argument's sake. He says if we go back in history, we look at, you know, what today we would consider very primitive societies. We would say that those societies were definitely not on the right path. In terms of the legal systems, the political systems that they were creating, they were very primitive, a lot of flaws in them, there's no justice, no equity, none of that. But as we see human beings and humanity in general, human civilization, has learned from its mistakes, evolved and matured over time, so we're definitely a lot better today than we were in the past. So someone could claim that today we have reached a system that works, or if we haven't reached it, then we're almost there. We now have the ingredients, we can put them together in the right way, and soon we will have a system that will work. There is no reason for us to go beyond. Human reason, combined with history, combined with the lessons that we have learned as humanity, is going to allow us to create the systems that we need. Okay? So he says, assuming, assuming, let's, for argument's sake, let's say this is possible. Let's agree with you. We today have a system that works and, you know, human beings have been granted knowledge, have been granted reason and sense perception, and with the advantage of history, they've been now able to reach the maturity required to create the legal system and the political system and the lifestyle with all the ingredients required for social happiness and individual happiness. Okay, so what do we do about all the previous generations? So if it took us millennia to reach, then what do we do about divine wisdom for this entire duration of time? Do we say that it was not applicable? All these people have to be sacrificed so that humanity reaches this level? How do we explain that? So he says this part is, so this is where we flip, it's unacceptable, and the argument is flipped, and this becomes the main argument for saying that humanity is always in need of revelation. Humanity is always in need of prophethood. Therefore, the argument that the first human being in the proper sense of us, human being, must have been a prophet, ha must have had access to revelation. And if he's the only one, or it's a very small group, then one of them had to be a prophet. So this is the argument that maybe human beings have been blessed, granted, given all the ingredients they need to eventually reach on their own, given the advantage of millennia of experience and wars and calamities and conflict and destruction and learning from all those lessons to eventually reach the truth. Even if we agree with that argument, which we don't really, but he doesn't say that, I'm adding that for myself. If we are to agree with that, then it's still not going to answer, but what do we do and how is this fair and how is it compatible with the divine wisdom that we have already explained, which means that every entity, every creature needs to be working with its, on a voluntary basis, based on its own free will, given the right ingredients towards its perfection, towards its end.
So obviously, if we put all of this together, the only option left for us at the end is revelation. So here revelation can be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the transcendent entity is, re is reaching out to you with a communication, with a message, with a truth that is revealed to you. For the majority of people, that's not the case. And we already talked about that a little bit in the previous lesson. So it becomes indirect. So I don't get the revelation myself. Someone else gets it and I have to go take it from them. Okay, so this is the direct or indirect, but ultimately it has to go back to, you cannot accept human reason, human knowledge as being the only source of knowledge for building your way of life individually and socially, collectively. You need something else. The something else, we explain what the conditions, the standards are, the expectations are. That's all the must-know absolutely, must-know absolutely that we mentioned. So putting all this together, the only alternative we have left is revelation. So we already explained this idea. The implication is that necessity of consistent presence for even from the first human being and although there are not many or none in the lesson, because we haven't established this yet, if we go back to the Holy Quran and the narrations and the hadith, we see that generally this argument is supported and we can take it out, we can find it from, from different angles, different aspects of it can be found in the Holy Quran and the narrations. So there is an insistence on the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not leave creation without any guidance, that there is an order to everything, for instance, or that our knowledge is limited, that we have to supplement uh, our knowledge with what comes to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this we find in the narrations of Imam al Imam al-Sadiq there's a lot of references, a lot of references to this. Okay, then the lesson goes into the benefits of prophethood. The first benefit and here's where it can get a little bit tricky because the author put these as benefits. So what are the benefits to humanity of having prophethood? These could also be flipped and made into arguments for revelation and prophethood. But let's go with how it's presented. So the first one that is mentioned is that the prophets serve as the function of reminding. So this is something that we talked multiple times, but it was always a quick reference to the notion of dhikr and the importance of dhikr or remembrance. And that this is not a matter of, you know, saying a word with your, with your mouth. It's the remembrance, being aware, being conscious internally of a presence, the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and, and. Or you flip it, so this is if you want to look outward or you look inward, you're aware of your own nature, you're aware of your own fitrah. So the fitrah is supposed to be clean, and if it's not, then their role is supposed to remind you of what your nature is, what it leans towards, what it aspires to. This is one of the roles, one of the main roles of prophethood and of revelation. So this is something that cannot be performed by anything else. So this is where you start seeing the exclusive domain of religion or the exclusive domain of revelation to explain to you and who else but your creator can explain to you what your nature is. Who else can tell you what your fatwa is? If there's all these distractions and all these accumulations of worldly things that are happening to you, the way you're raised and the environment you live in and your own complexes and your own experiences in life, how are you supposed to know 
inside in there somewhere where is your true nature is the nature that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed in you that the Quran refers to as fatra where is that how do you distinguish that from everything else and so this is the the link with the true nature so they serve the role of reminders and this is where you see human beings in general left alone they can discover a lot of things they have different means so in the beginning of the lesson we said human knowledge we're gonna put two good big categories to it, which is sense perception and reason. Well, this is another one, nature. Your fitrah is another source of your human knowledge. The problem is, can you rely on it and say, this is coming from my true nature and this is a perversion or a you know, distraction or a mistake. I'm, I'm considering this, this is a confusion. I think this is my true nature, but it isn't. I need something to, that I can rely on that tells me this is your true nature and this isn't. And we'll mention here a hadith from Imam Ali السلام, that we've already mentioned, but I go back to it so that we see the different angles of it. From the first sermon where the Imam talks about, that first sermon, I think everybody should learn it by heart, by the way. People should go back and read it and reread it. You have basically a, a, a microcosm of our history, of cosmological history, of the reason of, of creation, the details about the angels, about the prophets, about the holy prophet, about our religion, the state of the Arabs and when it, the holy prophet was sent to them. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful sermon. And there's so much, it's so rich that everybody should just keep going back to it and reading it, I think, all the time. So there's a lot of references to this in Najd Balagha, but I'm emphasizing sermon one, so hopefully people get poked in that, nudged in the right direction. Anyways, so there's this little passage so maybe two, three paragraphs. So I didn't put the whole passage, just the parts that where the Imam is specifically talking about the reason for sending prophets. He says from his progeny, so he's taught, he, he talked about the creation of Adam السلام, and what he went through. And uh, that's why I say like it's the history of humankind and in fact the history of the cosmos all the way to humankind and then from humankind to Adam السلام, and then humanity. Then from his progeny, Allah chose prophets and took their pledge for his revelation. So he took a pledge from the prophets so that they reveal the message like he's telling them to reveal it and for carrying his message as their trust. Then fast forward a little bit. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent among them his messengers and chains of his prophets to get them, so them as human beings, to get them to fulfill the pledges of his fitrah. And I intentionally put fitrah here because it's translated in different ways. So this is the first role that the prophets are supposed to be doing. This is their function. So to get them to fulfill the pledges of his fatwa. There is something owed here. There is a pledge, there is a commitment that your fatwa has. The prophets are here, revelation is here to force you to fulfill that pledge. To fulfill the pledges of his fatwa in them. To recall to them his bounties. We forget the bounties. We need to be reminded of them. To argue with them by preaching. To unearth, and this is a very important one, to unearth their buried intellects. Dafa and al-Aqul. Okay? It's like human beings take their reason, they, they take their intellect, and they bury it. And they need revelation to come and take it out, unearth it for them. Okay? to unearth their buried intellects and show them the signs of divine omnipotence. The signs are right in front of us, but we need the revelation to remind us that these are 
signs of the infinite power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The firmament which is raised over, their, over them, the cradle which is placed beneath them, means of sustenance that maintain them alive, and fixed timelines that, take, that make them die, and ailments that turn, turn them sick or erode them, or turn them old and erode them, and incidents that successively befall them. So this is all from the first sermon of Nahjabarah. Anyway, so this is just to support this idea that the one of the main functions, and some say the main function of prophethood and revelation, is to simply bring the human back to their true nature. Okay, so one. The second big benefit from revelation and prophethood is to purify human beings and here the author makes a quick jump, so he doesn't elaborate too much on the purification, and then he makes a quick jump to the practical aspect of having a human being who is a role model, who exemplifies, who personifies those teachings live in front of you. It's one thing for me to tell you, this is how you're supposed to behave, this is how you're supposed to carry yourself, these are supposed to be, this is how you're supposed to sacrifice, this is all in theory. They're beautiful notions. Everybody knows them. Or everybody can reach them. Everybody can agree to them. But are you actually going to do it? When there's that internal conflict, are you actually going to do it? So one way, one reason why we do it is that <coughs> we actually have role models that show us that it can be done. And they do it. And this is a completely... A lot of people can use this, and it's true. It can be used. On one side, I can say... You know, I'm going to teach you how to pray in theory. So now you know it in theory. I explained it to you. Now I'm going to perform the actions. So now I'm supplementing. I'm complementing the, the education process. Right? It's for pedagogical reasons. We're going to learn it together by action now. Okay, so this is a compliment. There's another argument that can be made is that it's a standalone argument. You don't even need the theory if you have the example live. Human beings learn very well just by looking without having the theory. I don't need to know anything about you. I just see you and see the way you conduct yourself, to see the way you carry yourself on your own and with others, the, the way you carry yourself with those close to you, with your enemies, with people in general, with other creatures. And that, to me, can be enough. And this is what we believe for the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt we believe that this is the main way they guide people. Before guiding them with the words and the sermons and the preaching, which is extremely important, the main methodology that is used is practice, is their own behavior. He doesn't need to tell people, this is the truth, or this is how you're supposed to be, or do this and don't do that. He does it and they see that this is beautiful. This is what it's supposed to be. Of course it is. This is, this is bringing me back to my true nature. So this becomes a standalone argument and not necessarily a complement to the theoretical argument. Okay? And then a quick point here is a lot of people are always asking about, you know, the raising children and the best way to teach children and how do you make them read Quran and I want my children to pray Salat al-Layl and so on and so forth. Well, you who is asking, me who I'm asking, I want my children to read Qur'an. How often do they see me read Qur'an? It's not about telling the child, read Qur'an, read Qur'an. The child learns from your behavior as a parent. You're the role model. You, you yell, they yell. You hit, they'll hit. You pray, they pray. 
They'll make up their mind later, but the formative years, they're emulating, they're copying. If you sit on your prayer mat enough and you pray, they're going to come sit beside you and they're going to pray. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to tell the child, come sit beside me and pray. If they know you get up in the middle of the night to pray, they're going to want to get up in the middle of the night to pray. To them, this is good behavior. This is the role model. We have a ruwaya, which is it's not the place for this ruwaya here, but we have a ruwaya from Allah Sadiq where in which he says, you know, be careful with the way you treat your children, especially with sustenance, with giving them the rizq. They see you as their lords. The child considers you their whole life. Everything they take, they take from you. So if they see a certain behavior, they're going to emulate it. They're going to copy it. To them, this is the ultimate truth. And then there's something that has to happen in their life that has to come and shake that trust and that reliance up. But until that happens, and that sometimes for some people that never happens. They will live until they're 60 and they think, you know, my father is the smartest and the greatest and the superman and, the, and that's fine. Okay, maybe they are. I don't know. But regardless of, these are the phases we go through as human beings. We grow up, we're looking up to our parents in every possible way. So what are you doing? Not what are you saying? What are you doing for the children? This is your role. This is your prophetic role in your family as a parent. What are you doing to, to show that in practice? Not in words. Words can come, but this is the behavioral part. Anyway, so this is the psychological impact. Point, the spiritual purification very quickly. Uh, at the bottom here we have two of the verses of the Quran, there are many of them, there's quite a few others that we can recite from here. Uh, one of them is the prayer of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, when he's praying for those people who are going to come after him from his own project. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him that I'm going to make those who succeed to you, who are going to come after you from your own project, they're going to be blessed and they're going to stay in this land and other lands. And he prays for them and he says, Our Lord sent among them a messenger from among them. Now we're going to understand from the point of view of Ibrahim what is the role he's playing as a prophet and as a messenger. And he's asking for that same role to be played in those people when there is a messenger who's going to be sent between among them. So he says, Send among them a messenger from among them who shall recite to them your signs, and teach them the book and the wisdom and purify them. Okay, there's no time now to go why. If you go to another verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now is talking, not Ibrahim Allah certainly favored the faithful when he sent among them a messenger from among themselves to recite to them his signs first and to purify them and to teach them the book and wisdom. Whereas in the first verse, the purification came after the teaching. And here, the purification is coming before. Anyways, that, that requires a, a lengthy discussion of why there's a flip in the order. But the importance of the role of purifier that the messengers and prophets are playing, or revelation is supposed to be playing for us. And then finally, <clears throat> the role of leadership. So this is not simply having a role model to copy, to follow, to emulate. But this is actually having a leader. You're in a social context, you're in a political context. You want someone to lead you. And this is a 
huge blessing when you live in an environment where there is a leadership that you can rely on. And then you take that to the ultimate level where there's a leadership that is infallible, where you can put your trust entirely in it. <coughs> so socially, you know that you're being taken care of. You're in good hands. You can blindly follow that leader. You can rely on them and trust them. And this is the greatest blessing that we have lost now. Imagine the people living under the, the leadership of the Holy Prophet, or the leadership of Imam Ali السلام, or any of the other Imams. We have in our narrations how the believers would come from all over the land and they would go to the Imams and in our narrations they say they present their belief to them. The person comes from a thousand kilometers away, he travels all of his distance to sit five minutes in front of the Imam to tell the Imam, son of the Prophet, this is my belief. And he says all what he believes. He tells him, is my belief correct? Do I have the proper belief system? This is what I believe in God. This is what I believe in the prophets. This is what I believe in you. This is what I believe in the Imam. This is what I believe in the afterlife, the Holy Quran. Imagine that kind of leadership. Blind reliance and trust in that kind of leadership. So of course this is going to have a huge impact on the people living under that kind of leadership. And it's a long lasting impact. It doesn't stop with those people. It impacts those societies, those communities for generations and generations. It changes the trends or the evolution or the maturity of human history. If those points in history happen where you have this type of leadership, everything changes. Those communities that go through that just took a different turn. And they're going to have a different impact on any other interactions they're going to have with other communities and other societies. Anyways, a few final remarks and then we'll, we'll close. Um, so in summary, we said there's a lot of arguments, a lot of proofs that we can present for the need for prophethood and revelation. Obviously, we concentrated on one. We tried to make it complex so that others are implied within it. Okay, so here we're summarizing and we're going to add a couple more, just so that you're aware of that. If you go to my, if I remember correctly, the, the, the work that probably has lists the most and the most comprehensive, detailed, technically detailed way is the commentary of Kishf al-Murad, Sharh Tajreed al-Atiqad, Kishf al-Murad al-Alam al-Hilli, where he explains the work of Tusi, uh, and may God have mercy upon them. He lists nine proofs for the necessity of revelation of prophet. Okay, so we're not going through all of them, we're mentioning the main ones here. So the need for knowledge is the main argument that we relied on here today. We said human knowledge on its own is limited, therefore we need more. The more is two types of knowledge. One type is exclusively the domain of religion. There are things that cannot be accessed by a human being, no matter how much intellect they have and how much you know, investigation and research they do, we will not know what awaits us on, in the afterlife. It's impossible to know that. If there's no revelation that tells me that, I will not know. Other things I can know, but I will know them partially. And I need revelation to come and complement and give me details. Okay? So there is a domain that is exclusively the area of religion. 
And there is no question about that. So that can never be reached unless you have access to revelation. And then there is the more. And of course here we can open all sorts of topics about even a lot of the, you know, the, the knowledge that we consider humanity to have today. Although it may be argued that perhaps human beings would have discovered all of those things by themselves on their own, a very strong case can be made that a lot of the basics, the foundations, the seeds for entire fields that matured and develop, were developed and evolved over time, they came from prophets. They put those seeds in human society and these grew into whatever they became. So entire fields related to the military arts and entire fields related to the arts in general and to uh, governing uh, political governance. And we have many, many instances where prophets were involved and people learned from them. And these, these became the tried and tested and true systems that humanity relies <coughs> on afterwards. Okay, so the second point that we were making is that revelation is about meeting the need to find the proper way to live our lives. We are looking for a way of life. So this way of life, there is a component of it that is individual. And I think for most of us, this is the part that we usually concentrate on. But there is also the collective. And it would be a mistake to concentrate on one or the other only. We have to look at both. So if I want to come up with a system, if I'm debating with someone about a system, the system that is even worthy of being looked at, being considered, must take both into consideration, individual and collective. Human beings are social beings. If you read other works of theology, they insist on this point and they make the case. I think this goes without saying, so we didn't spend time on it. Human beings are social creatures. When you are a social creature, you have to live in a social system. If you live in a social system, you need laws, you need an order, you need organization. This needs to come from somewhere. So this is simply a different way to present the argument because it wasn't presented that way. Then we spent a little bit of time. So this is again, summarizing it in a different way. The conditions we're looking for in the lawmaker. The conditions we're looking for in the source of knowledge are what? First of all, complete, absolute knowledge of the human being and everything related to that human being, internally and outside, all the interactions, point one. Point two, that lawmaker, and this is, this is obviously an indirect jab at all other lawmakers, that lawmaker cannot gain any benefit from the law system that he's putting in place. Otherwise, he's putting a system that enables him that profits him, that is good for him. We need a lawmaker or a source of knowledge to be absolutely objective. Three, looking at all aspects of being, including the spiritual and the afterlife. And this one is really difficult, especially if we go back to areas being the exclusive domain of religion. How else are you going to access those? I don't think I had another slide. So I think the star here yeah, there is one more uh, mention, the individual and the collective. The argument that we presented today is kind of the slightly more simplified version. Okay, so if you're looking to the slightly more sophisticated, complex version, you have to look for it in the works of uh, Shahid Mutahari, uh, Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, and Sayyid al-Allah al Okay, 
in general, what they are presenting is this idea that as human beings live together, and there are many, many pages written to explain this, as human beings live together in societies, and those societies become more and more complex, the need for religion and revelation grows. It doesn't go down, it actually goes up. Okay? And we don't have time to go into all those details. Generally speaking, this is because human beings, because they live in a social order, you have to rely on others. They have to rely on you for things, and you have to rely on them for other things. So there are some of you who are going to be higher in some things and lower in others, and in other things, you're going to be lower and someone else is going to be higher. And this creates conflict. And if you leave human beings, and history proves this, anyone who studies history, shows that it's usually those with the power who are going to try to keep the power, to consolidate the power, to create a system that only gives them the power and increases their power and reduces the power of everybody else. And it's always at the expense of others. So this is the individual. Always the individual looking out for himself or for herself. So how do we turn this into a social order that is actually just? And this is where you have to bring back the revelation. This is where you have to bring back something that balances things and in a way where people voluntarily want to do it. It's not because there's a police officer that I do this. It's because I believe in heaven and hell. There's, it's from the inside. I'm internally motivated to do certain things and not do other things. Okay? All of this, I think, so this is a... Uh, something I'm encouraging you to do, an invitation to do. I think all of this can be taken out from a verse of the Holy Quran. In Surah Al-Zukhruf, it says, it is, is, is it they who dispense the mercy of your Lord? It is we who have dispensed among them their livelihood in the present life and raised some of them above others in ranks so that they may take others into service. And your Lord's mercy is better than what they amass. I think at face value, it summarizes what we said. If you look at it and you think about every part of the verse, you're going to see a lot of interconnections that, inshallah, reveal other things to you. Okay, we don't have time to spend more on this. Other role of the revelation and prophethood. Guidance of true nature. We spent a little bit of time on that. We said it's the reminder role. Of your fatra, the part that we didn't talk about is the rest of our faculties, our desires. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us in a certain way. So what do we do about the rest? So the role of revelation is to come and give us a little bit of direction on how to balance all of this, how to balance all of those desires so that we fulfill them without transgressing on ourselves or anyone else. The role model model. We're not going to spend more time on that. The presence of luxuries versus necessities. So for those I know some of you are very interested in Mullah Sadr, so I, I thought I'd add Mullah Sadr argument here. This is an argument that he actually mentions, I think, in Nabda wal Ma'ad. And others have made the argument too, but I remember it from Mullah Sadr, where he talks about, he says if we look at the world in which we live, we see that there are a lot of things that we would consider luxuries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in. And so he gives a few examples. One of them saying this line, which 
you know, when we taken together, we would consider that to be the eyelashes. He says the way the eyelashes have been made is a luxury. This is not a logical necessity for your Lord, your Creator, to build it this way in this manner for you to be protected from a little bit of sand or wind or sun. Okay, and yet this is the meticulous creation with which it was made. And then he mentions the ark that we have at our foot. And he says this is another example where this would be considered a luxury. Unless you're flat-footed, then I'm sorry for you. Okay? But these are luxuries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in His creation. He says if we look at these luxuries and we see how many of them there are, is it possible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took care of His creation to this point to go to these things that are only nice to have and He would have neglected the main point of creating human beings which is to guide them back towards Him. So this is the nice to have versus must have. There's a luxury, there are luxuries that we expect from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and there there are the necessities. I need the things that, this is the point of my existence first. We'll deal with the secondary things after. So he says this is another argument. So for those looking for other arguments for prophethood and revelation, this is another argument, luxuries, okay? And it falls under the general heading of the lutf that, that I'm gonna mention in a second. Another argument that is mentioned is the permission to act in this world. So again, in, in one minute, very quickly. If we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator, absolute owner of the world, okay? Malik and Malik in the absolute sense that we describe. Manager of all affairs, me and everything with me and everything in me and the rest of the world. Then should I not fear the moment I become aware in this universe, in this world, should I not fear for myself and make sure that I'm actually behaving in the appropriate manner, especially when it comes to the rights of other entities that do not belong to me, that I have no right over. And there's no way to live in this world without having some sort of sovereignty, some sort of management of the affairs of other creatures. It's impossible. So only for that reason, I need to go back to God and say, well, you need to reveal something to me so that I know what I'm supposed to do here. Am I allowed to do this with the rest of your creation or not? Okay, so this is the permission argument. Okay, that's another one that Alam Hali mentions in Tajrid uh, al And then maybe a quick point and we'll finish with this. And we didn't mention it, it was not mentioned in the lesson, but pretty much every work that you're going to go back to will make some mention generally speaking in the belief system so this field of aqaid kalam and specifically for prophethood this notion of lutf lutf or divine grace is very important in kalam so i'm mentioning it just so that you're aware of the terminology and what it means we didn't go through it i'm not going to spend too much time on it. i'm just giving you to the terminology it could be very problematic okay Lut basically means it's a divine grace. It's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does by adding in your conditions, in your surroundings, in your environment, in your reality, He's adding ingredients that allow you to better move towards the direction He wants you to move to. But it can never reach the point of compulsion. It can never reach the point of becoming 
something that forces you, that necessitates for, of you to do something. Otherwise, that would defy the purpose of free will. Okay, so they're gentle reminders, tools being put in place along the way in this creation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the theologians call divine graces. Divine graces, lutf, they fall in two categories. There's lutf muqarrib and lutf muhassif. That I'm translating loosely as a divine grace that is essential and a divine grace that is supplementary. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to act freely, to go back towards Him, to worship Him, He needs to give me the tools to, in order to do that. These are essential graces. He needs to give me the intellect that is capable of reaching there. He needs to give me maybe a book or a prophet, maybe not both, yet He gave me both. These can be considered essential graces. And He also supplemented them with other graces. So you have now been told by revelation, by your prophet, by your reason, by your nature, that lying is bad. That should be enough for you not to do it. Stealing is bad. That should be enough for you not to do it. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to come and by His grace add another layer to motivate you, to encourage you. And He's going to say, and if you do it, there's going to be a punishment. There's going to be a punishment in this world. There's going to be a punishment in the next world. Oh no, now I have one more incentive, one more driver, one more encouraging factor to do and not to do. So this is an additional grace. This did not need to be put in here. I did not need the punishment or the thing in itself should have been enough. I know right and wrong. I should do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala adds. So these are considered supplementary. This is al-lutfil muqarrib, not muhassib. The reason I mention this is there's a discrepancy, there's a disagreement. In what sense do we consider prophethood a lutf? And which lutf it is? Okay, but once you have the terminology, then the rest is, is detailed. Okay, so now that you have it. Um, and yet, the last thing I would end with, and maybe an argument to, if you're in a debate, or even if we are to say that human beings, based on their own reason, can reach truth, or that it's not absolutely necessary. We are still in a situation where something was revealed. And we are in a situation where there is prophethood. So at least we can consider prophethood as a useful thing, as a beneficial thing, even if we don't necessarily want to consider it a necessary thing. Okay, so that's an additional argument to add to your arsenal if ever in that situation and for yourselves. It's at least, it should be clear and easy to show that it's at least useful. And then what we're claiming is, this is in the worst case scenario where you can't establish that it's necessary. At least it's useful, so it's a positive thing. Thank you, Sayyid. So we have one question. So we're going to start with the sisters if they want to ask something. About the lecture, yeah, it's better to be about the topic today.
It's a really good question. Uh, we're actually, I believe, we're going to talk about this one specifically because in two or three lessons, next we're going to start talking about the infallibility as one of the traits of the prophets. We have to talk about now that we agree that there is prophethood and revelation, how do we know that someone is a prophet? So we have to talk about miracles. And then we have to see how can we rely on someone like that. So we have to talk about infallibility. And for each one of these lessons, so including next lesson, next lesson is we have to answer objections to everything we say. Okay, so the lesson is only built on that. There's objections to the things we said, and I'm gonna add more than what's in the book because there's a lot more that we can add. And then we go into those topics. And this is one of the typical objections that are said about infallibility. And at a practical level and in theory, how can we follow people who are infallible? Yeah, and, but I think it's a really important question that's practical and maybe just a, a couple of things um, the first one is the whole point of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sending human beings and the Quran insists on this and it was something that I thought maybe I talked about or not today but there was too much to cover so I'm going quickly over it when we talked about role models is this idea that the insistence of previous nations on wanting non-human beings to come preach to them so they say, you know, had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted, he would have sent angels to us. Why did he send these people who are just like us? Which shows, of course, there's a problem with envy, there's a problem with all sorts of things. They cannot accept the fact that this is a person just like them, and, they, and yet they are that good, and preaching to them, and having reached a rank where they're communicating with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so in any case, the point is to have access to these people that we consider human beings just like us. And that's why the Holy Quran even mentions people who eat food and who walk amongst you in the markets. Yeah, like the Quran makes a point to go there. That's, that's the one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that they are supposed to be, and I'm just summarizing it so it doesn't have any punch now. It needs a, a long introduction and then it would have its punch. But the point is that we aspire to be like not that we become like them, it's impossible. And maybe something that would help all of us to, to live with that idea is to keep in mind that the same thing we struggle with, that notion of how much better they are and yet we're supposed to be like them and it's kind of impossible for us to be like them, they actually struggle with it too. Because they are at different ranks themselves. And someone can take that and despair from it. And someone else will take that and build their comp competitive drive to try, if they can do it, I'll try to do it too. Even though I know I'll never be there. Get motivated, yeah. But I have to motivate myself to go there. And if we go through the lives of the prophets, for instance, they know that they're not at the same ranks, and yet they struggle, they strive to go up to purify themselves more. We have narrations, they come to Imam Sajjar salam or Imam al salam and they ask him, which of you, they ask Imam al salam which of you worships like Ali salam And the Imam laughed, and he said, which of us worships like Ali? Like it's a nonsensical question you're asking. He says, yes, my father, Imam Sajjar salam his worship had a semblance of the worship of then we have another narrations where they ask Imam Sajjad 
and he says, what, they tell him, what is your worship compared to the worship of Imam Ali And he says, a drop in the sea. The Imams السلام, they know that there's a difference between them. Just like we see that there are heights that we'll never reach. But it doesn't mean we despair. It means we have to turn it and move in that direction. We have to say we aspire to it. Quran السلام, uh, orders us to, commands us to. In Surah Al-Mutafatin it says, after it describes heaven, it says, For those things that we just described about heaven, let those who want to compete, compete for those things. Those are worthy of competition. Okay, so we have to learn how to turn that not into despair. Just that aspiration is rewarded by Allah. Not the act itself. Aspiring to be that. And we're ordered to. This is the other part. So imagine Imam Ali السلام, who says, I was a slave to the Holy Prophet. I was one of the slaves, or one of the servants of the Holy Prophet. Yet the Quran explicitly tells us, There was a good or sublime example for you in the Messenger of Allah. But it was if it's impossible, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows who the Prophet is. No one else knows except Allah. And He says He is an example for you. You have to follow in His footsteps. This is what you're supposed to do. So which means we have to turn it around. It's impossible for us to be like that. But even amongst them, they're not at the same level. And they're all competing for that too. They're all aspiring towards that. And then there's a whole other dimension that it's not time to talk about, which is the point is to concentrate on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that road is infinite. It doesn't have an end. The proximity never ceases. And that's how we have to understand what Imam Ali السلام, or Umayyad or any other ad'iyah. It gives the impression like he's asking for forgiveness for sins. It's not sins. The problem is the road is infinite. The road doesn't have an end. So if it's infinite, then of course I'm always going to be short. I'm never going to be where I'm supposed to be. The road is short. The path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is infinite. And this is what he's complaining about. Anyway, so this is more mystical and we can talk inshallah about that another time. Any other questions related to the lecture? We're good? Inshallah we continue next time. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.